on the one hand, I had this VR headset that I had built myself and I was like, maybe other people would like that thing. Facebook was interested and showed interest in working with me and I loved those engineers and those product people. And on the other hand, I felt like I had a different vision than them when it came to VR and something to offer in having a slightly different point of view. But at the same time, I was 15 years old, so I didn't really know what to do with it. That's Maxim Perumal, the founder of Unai, and I think he's a certifiable genius. He's certainly one of the most exciting founders I've ever spoken to. He built the world's most popular open source VR headset when he was 15 years old. I mean, who does that? Let's find out. But first, you're going to need to know a little bit about his company, Unai. They're building a VR headset and virtual world, and he's managed to pull together a crack team from the likes of Apple, NVIDIA, Intel, Activision, and Sony. Their goal is to make human expression in VR feel magical. There's a lot of impressive things about Maxim, but his ability to attract stellar talent is quite something. These ridiculously qualified people all really believe in a young man who's only just been able to drink in the States. And you know what? I believe in him. I think you're going to find him compelling. He's got a great explanation for why the likes of Meta have been failing with VR and their version of the Metaverse, but he also hints at a more exciting alternative. Maxim is a modern-day wizard, but he grew up in the unlikeliest of environments to become a computer science and engineering prodigy. I grew up in the countryside of France. My dad is an artist, he's a painter, so my childhood was mostly brothers and sisters, my dad, my mom, uh, and plenty, plenty of books. And because my dad was at home, I didn't really go to school. You know, he's working from home as a, as a painter. And so it was a lot of time spent sort of hanging out with him whilst he was doing art. And the turning point probably would be first time we got a computer at home. And growing up in the middle of nowhere, one of the side effects is a lot of the friends I made, I had to make those friends online. You know, it started out in, in video games and sort of multiplayer worlds. And very quickly I got into Minecraft, of course, and started building those Minecraft multiplayer server, right? As you know, in Minecraft, users can create their own virtual world, their own game inside the game. And so that's what I, I started doing. And very quickly I became the de facto friend for everyone in the group of friends to be like, hey, can we try to play this and try to play that? And so started hosting my own servers, uh, started programming some of my own modes, trying to design my own texture pack for the game, hired a bunch of friends to help me out with this. And we were running that on like super small computer that we, we got for free from school. And so very quickly, like we like that was not enough anymore. So so we had to ask other users for donation and then try to rent servers online. And, and that was sort of my introduction to what it's like to manage people, try to build something with them, try to make money from it and, and, and try to create what we tried to make a great product at the time. Then the Oculus came out, right? The VR headset uh, from Palmer Lucky. I think I was 14 or 15. I look at it and I'm like, oh, like, this would be the perfect device. If I could use it and hang out with my friends using it, that, that would be the dream outcome for me. Okay. I know you had a teacher who was super influential in your life, right? So when did you meet them? That's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me is 
when I was 12, I had this crazy mathematics teacher uh, in middle school. And one of the funny thing about him is, you know, now he, he teaches at university and high school and, and all of that. But at the time, he really wanted to sort of have an impact. And so he, he went to a middle school and started teaching middle schoolers. And it's funny because, you know, he's got a degree in math and a degree in computer science. And he's done that MIT class called uh, Computational Structure, which is a super hard class on building your computer from scratch. So he's this kind of like way, way, way overqualified guy in this middle school. Um, and we became very close friends, actually. Almost every day I would sort of just hang out in his classroom, not really going to the other classes. And he set up a computer in the back of his class. And so I was just like going in his class math, his class and just using the computer in the back of the room and sort of writing code and programming all day long. And he taught me mathematics, he taught me programming. And he had this joke that he would make every year, telling his student, if you want, during the summer break, we can do the curriculum of next year. And so I took his word for it. And basically during middle school, we did like the whole sort of mathematic curriculum for middle school and high school and year one and year two of, of, of uni, of university. And, and that's when we became really, really, really friends. And then he went to high school. He uh, took a new job in my high school, so left his previous job, asked to be my teacher in high school and basically asked the head of the school uh, for me not to attend any other class and just spend all of my time with him. And somehow, crazily enough, that kind of worked out. That's amazing. That's a very inspiring story and not one that you often hear from people. I'm assuming that your parents probably had to buy into this as well and, and to agree to let you drop other classes and, and focus only on, on this. So how did those conversations go? It's funny. I think even at the time I was already very decisive. So I kind of really, really knew what I wanted. Sort of the, the way I approached it often was I've already made my decision. I'm just letting you know about it. And it's going to be very hard to stop me from, you know, executing on the decision, right? One of the ways that happened at the time in high school is, so I would say having that math teacher helping me out kind of is what enabled this. I remember that time I sent an email to, again, the, the provisor, the head of my school, basically telling him, hey, this week, here are all the classes during which I fell asleep. I think I'm wasting my time. Would it be fine if I did not attend those classes? And instead just went with sensei, as I call him, my math teacher, and just did more math. And I just sent that email and just stopped attending those other classes. And I think him in the background had to talk to everyone and be like, no, no, that's not what he meant. And sort of, you know, like um, smoothing things over for me. And so I think I was able to kind of do those things because he was in the background enabling me to do that and sort of convincing everyone to take what I said with a grain of salt and, and all of that. So nice to have someone who believes in you so young as well, because one of the greatest gifts that you can give to people, which is very hard to come by, is confidence. Yeah. So virtual reality as a 14 year old, a super nascent category. You talked earlier about, you know, you were one of the, you remember when the Oculus first came out and you and your friends were excited to explore it. Where did your journey take you from this moment? It's funny because the Oculus was actually too expensive. It, it was about a thousand dollar and you know, 
was teenager, so didn't have that kind of money laying around. And so I thought maybe I can build it myself and sort of build it from scratch. And frankly, I had no idea what I was doing, but I started putting together electronics and hardware and components and soldering stuff together and trying to write code and software and firmware. And after about a year, I basically had built something. It was kind of the same thing as an Oculus, um, less expensive. It was, I built it slightly differently and, and it was my own VR headset. I built it for myself just because I personally wanted to be in VR, but then realized that, hey, this is pretty cool. Maybe other people would like it. I started posting about it online and that's when uh, Facebook took notice. And as a bit of context at the time, Facebook had just acquired Oculus, the, that company making the VR headset. Um, so they took notice and sort of people started reaching out and, and I ended up being uh, introduced by David Marcus, who was at the time the head of Messenger and previously, I believe, was the CEO of PayPal. And so David Marcus did the introduction to the Oculus team, and which was this kind of magical moment where Facebook flew me to California uh, to their office. How old were you? I believe 15. Yeah, 15. Incredible. I'm there meeting with them, meeting with Atman Binstock, their chief architect at Oculus, and probably some of the most talented, passionate, brilliant people I've ever met. You know, the people working on VR at Facebook, they're engineers, incredible people. Some of their producers of like video games and content as well, incredibly impressive people. Overall, very, very impressive team. But then what I quickly realized was that I did not felt like the management at Facebook really understood VR or understood what I felt uh, VR should be like. Then the situation I found most myself in at the time was, on the one hand, I had this VR headset that I had built myself, and I was like, maybe other people would like that thing. And you know, Facebook was interested and showed interest in working with me, and I loved those engineers and those product people. And on the other hand, I felt like I had a different vision than them when it came to VR, and I had a different perspective and something to offer in having a slightly different point of view, right? But at the same time, I was 15 years old, so I didn't really know what to do, what to do with it. I was super lucky because so I was staying in this house with a bunch of other entrepreneurs. And one evening they had this, this party and I randomly met this guy, Dorian. And I'm, I'm telling my story to someone else and Dorian is sitting next to me and he's sort of like older guy, gray hair, gray beard. At the time, to me, it kind of felt like, oh, that guy is kind of looking like a wizard. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that's, a, that's super interesting. I've, I've heard the end of your story. Can you say it again from the beginning? And so I tell my story again to him from the beginning. And, and he's looking me straight in the eye, incredibly focused. And he tells me, well, this is incredible. What are you going to do with this headset? And I tell him, frankly, I, I don't know. <laughs> frankly, I have no idea. What do you suggest I do with it? You know? And actually, he told me a story. He told me that I was 15 when Mark Zuckerberg was about the same age as I was. So when he was 15, 16, he created this app that uh, was able to recommend music according to your taste. And he built this app, I believe, with Adam D'Angelo. And they built this app, posted about it online. 
and Microsoft uh, got interested. And Microsoft came to them and said, hey, we would like to acquire this app for, for quite a big sum of money for you know, someone this young. And they turned down Microsoft. Microsoft. And instead, they took this app that they had built and they open sourced it, making basically everything available for free online, including the source code of the app. And what happened then, uh, of course, the rest is kind of a history because he then, you know, joins Harvard, starts working on, on the Facebook. And the legend goes that when he tried to hire the best hackers, the best programmers, he was known as the guy who said no to Microsoft. And he had this reputation of being a true hacker, of, of having this, this uh, ethic that hackers and the best programmers loved. And that's what enabled him to attract the best talent. And, and that's how he made a name for himself. And also, a lot of the people that sort of get a huge sum of money very young, it seems like it's very hard for them to then stay uh, mentally healthy. So he, he might have dodged the bullet as well, right? And so he tells me that story and I'm like, all right, so yeah, that's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to take everything I built, the hardware, the software, the firmware, all of it, and I'm going to open source everything. I went back to France, to the countryside, middle of nowhere. My code was really bad, so I spent a few months refactoring everything and then open sourced everything, including the hardware. That, that was this sort of crazy experience where at the very beginning, probably the first week only sort of 10 people cared. But then very quickly, we got to a threshold where about 100 people and then 1,000 people and then lots of people all over the world started actually building the headset by themselves. And I mean, those people would literally go out there, buy the component, solder those components by themselves, assemble the headset, compile the software, install the software, and use the software. And, and that sort of was this crazy magical experience. And on the other side of that, uh, I had built software as well. And, and in parallel, I was starting to work on a rendering system. Rendering system being uh, the software that actually creates the visuals that you see in a VR headset. And I was working on this for an app, an app uh, a software called Unity. And Unity is used to create about half of the video games in the world. What happened at the same time is it started attracting software developers. And I started taking what I had built and improving it and reusing it in other places. And then I started spending time with those software developers and trying to contribute to things uh, in VR. And, and, and trying to spend a lot of time building stuff for this open source community, op uh, open source group in VR and trying to organize things with people and, and trying to do some research of my own as well. And dropped out of school at, at that point in time, so 15 or 16, and just fully dedicated myself to doing research on VR in my bedroom with dozens of people all over the world and really more importantly than everything, learning from them people that had worked at Apple, people that had worked at Sony. So I did that for a few years and kept building stuff in this VR ecosystem. And then uh, the sort of big moment for me is the Oculus Quest 2 releases. And when that happens, a big deal. All of a sudden, many, many people around me buy a VR headset, start using it, but they pretty much all follow the same pattern, where they buy it, 
They use it for about a week, maybe 10 days, and then they just stop using it. And, and so I see all my friends coming into VR, loving it, being very impressed. And then the headset just sort of sits on, on their bookshelf and it's just collecting dust. That was the moment for me where I was like, all right, like, I think I have a good grasp of what is wrong with VR right now and how I could improve that. And that's when I decided, all right, I'm going to build my own company and try to solve the issues of VR. And my goal is to make a VR headset that people actually enjoy using and that they actually use every day. And that's not just sitting on shelves collecting dust. Okay, so basically sounds a little bit like I'm going to go toe-to-toe against Apple, against Facebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that was sort of the pitch. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, so you're 19 years old. You've got this new idea for a headset that is far more competitive, more compelling what do you do next? Like, how do you go and get funded for something like this? Because let's be honest, you're going to go take those guys on. You can't just be doing this for soldering irons in your basement. So there's a lot of research in VR and I don't want to take credit for it. Using it for so long and being friends with people in the space for so long, I kind of knew what needed to be fixed. And many people do. It's not rocket science. VR headset, they still make people sick. They still give them a headache. Uh, It's too heavy. Uh, Because it's heavy, you have to push the headset against your face to compensate for the weight of it. Another one is the latency in the VR headset is making you motion sick. Or the low latency of the tracking or the latency of the headset. And there's a long tail of issues such as those, you know, some of them being more product-wise. So the fact that 
when you do from time to time pick up the headset that's on your bookshelf, I don't know if you if you have one, but most people experience is they're going to take it off, try to turn it on, then realize that there's no battery left because the battery drained while it was off, and then they charge it, and then when it's done charging, they try to turn it on, and now it's turning on, but now their Facebook account needs to be updated to a Meta account, and they cannot do it in the headset, they have to do it on their laptop, and I could walk you through it. It's this very, very complicated, complicated setup to turn on a VR headset. Uh, matter of fact, just a few days ago, I was sharing with the team a Twitter thread that the user made explaining that they got a VR headset to their brother. And I kid you not, it took them, I believe, about 40 minutes to get started in VR, 40 minutes to set up the VR headset. So you have this long tail of issues. So I went out there and tried to talk to Unity, right? I was super familiar with Unity. I was friends with a lot of people over there and told them, hey, I can tell you how to fix those issues. Do you think Unity could fix those issues for me? Like sort of build software that fix all of those problems and then publish that software. And then I'll take that software, use it and build a really good VR headset with it. And explain that to my friends. They're like, oh, that sounds fantastic. But go and ask someone else. Maybe NVIDIA can help you out. One of the most successful tech stocks of the last decade um, because they make incredible, high-powered gaming chips, right? Exactly. Huge company, right? And I go and talk to NVIDIA and uh, they basically tell me, that's fantastic. We would love for someone to build that. Why don't you go and ask, I think the Qualcomm at the time it was, why don't you go and ask Qualcomm to build that thing? And Qualcomm also a widely successful company. They design and manufacture phone processors, the vast majority of the phone processors in the world, actually. And Qualcomm was like, this is amazing, super exciting. You know, why don't you go and ask Epic Game, which is another game engine company, to go out there and build it? So at that point in time, I kind of realized, all right, so none of them are going to actually build that thing. That's when I was like, all right, so it sounds like I have to do it myself anyway. And reached out to a few people. The first um, commit we had was from Naval Ravikant, an investor from the Valley. I think my email was, check this out. This is currently the world's most popular VR headset. I built it when I was 15 years old. It's pretty good VR headset, but there's a bunch of issues with them. Here's how I plan on solving them. If I'm successful, I think I can beat Apple and Meta, and I want to make a company out of it. And then he was just like, hey, like, here's my WhatsApp. And we started just sort of talking to each other and, and then got on the phone together. So you've got someone like him. Who else came into your realm? What have you raised so far to bring this Apple and Facebook killing company to life? What do you, how much money do you need? How, much do you, how do you even decide how much you need? And how did you go about the process of getting the money? Sure. So we're currently not sharing how, exactly how much we've raised. Although we've, we're pretty comfortable and recently raised uh, a larger round led by Lucky Groom. Um, and overall, our investors include many, many people uh, that we're very, very grateful to have as investors. Lucky Groom, Naval uh, being some of them, La Fagmilia, VC in Europe uh, being another stride in, in, in Europe and the UK, NFX uh, in the US and Israel. Uh, James Vincent, uh, who also happened to be one of our first angels, 
And I think that's a little bit of an interesting story here. I think I called email James as well. So as you know, James Vincent um, worked with uh, Steve Jobs for over uh, 11 years, leading the marketing and communication uh, for Apple for all those years and, and, and helped craft some of the most delightful and interesting communication and advertising ever in the history of computers. And so someone that I have a lot and lot and lot of, of admiration for. And we got on the phone together and probably one of the things where right off the bat, we seem to understand, understand each other is that I explained to him that one of the divide I was observing in the industry is that on the one side, I was seeing hardware companies building their hardware in isolation and, and then struggling to get developers and, and people interested in building content for it. And on the other hand, I was seeing people trying to create content for VR, struggling to do so very well, and not seeing the features that they actually wanted out of the hardware being implemented in the hardware. And that that disconnect had those profound effects that I mentioned where it takes 40 minutes to set up the VR headset because the hardware and the software, they just cannot talk very well to each other. And of course, coming from Apple, this is something that he understood right away. And I was like, wow, finally, someone that really gets me, you know, that understands that right away. And what James explained to me is back when he was working on the Macintosh for the release in 1984, what they did, which was brilliant, was in crafting this new medium of computing. And for context, the Macintosh was the first computer desktop with a graphical user interface, the first mainstream one with a graphical user interface and a computer mouse and buttons and windows and all those sort of things. So the first mainstream one to have those things. And James put it in a wonderful way, he told me, when I worked on the Macintosh, we took what was before, which was common lines and common prompts and code that you would write directly on the keyboard. And we created a set of metaphors around uh, something that people already knew and were familiar with, which is the desk, right? So it's not a computer anymore, it's a desktop. It's not data anymore, it's a file. Like it's easy to take it for granted. You might think that what I'm saying is uh, painfully obvious, but really it's not painfully obvious. Like you had to have people that sat down and decided we are going to invent this whole new set of metaphors and, and build a new me medium out of that. And that's what enabled during that all that time period, the, the whole sort of computer revolution. And then when you look at the iPhone, uh, the big innovation of the iPhone, again, it's not that the processor is faster because it's not. It's the set of metaphor and the medium itself changed. So on the iPhone, you don't have files and folders and trash can anymore. Now you have an app. And so the question that James asked me, which is the same question I was asking the industry and where I felt like I had the right answer was from command line to a desktop, from a desktop to there is an app for that on the iPhone, which was the slogan of the iPhone back then, to VR. So now, what, what, is, what is the medium of VR? What is the set of metaphors? What is the use case? What is, what is the experience like? 
And at the time, and to this day, the answer that Meta and all those companies have, have given us is essentially taking the same metaphors from the iPhone and putting them into VR. And that just did not work. They just put the interface of your iPhone and they make it in a big display in front of you in VR. And you have, with your controller, you can sort of, you have a joystick and you can move around those interfaces and that just does not work. And so there, there needed to be someone building those interfaces from scratch for the medium of VR. So I know it sounds a little bit abstract, but it was this sort of deep belief that someone had to build for a new medium. And that's something that I and James uh, shared. And, and, and I think that's why he was one of our first investors. So, I mean, that obviously has me leading up to the question of what are you uh, suggesting is the correct interface then? Yeah, so that's a fascinating question. I'm always very careful in answering those. And let me tell you why. What a lot of us in the industry believed was that video game shooters, first-person shooters, were going to be this big thing in VR, that people, that gamers would put on those VR headsets, pretend to be in a video game where they shoot people and they would run around in VR and, and shoot people around. And we really thought this is going to be very big. And a matter of fact, a lot of what was built at the time was built for that use case. Well, it turned out that actually, um, if you move in the game, but not in real life, there is this difference between what your brain is seeing in, in the game and what your brain knows it is really happening. That gives you headaches. So people would get way too motion sick in those shooter games in VR. Turns out that the violence of those was a little shocking to many people, right? You, you would put your grandparents in it and shoot at them in VR, they would like fall and be surprised, you know, because it was a lot to take in for people. And instead, what we've discovered was something that really took off was fitness. And no one saw that one coming, right? For people listening, they might think, what is the link between fitness and VR? And I know it sounds surprising, but it's actually pretty funny. You put on the VR headset and you have, you have cubes or objects or whatever coming at you, and you have to dodge them or to punch them or to cut them, whatever it is. And it's a way of doing fitness. You usually do it with music simultaneously. And it is one of the biggest use cases of VR and no one saw it coming. And in retrospect, it's pretty obvious why it worked out because you just need to move in real life. Everything you do in real life is exactly equivalent to what's happening in the game. Then comes another surprise. We start making cheaper, more affordable VR headsets. And we believed, many people in the industry believed, now people are gonna start consuming movies and videos in VR. So 360 video, VR videos, however you wanna call it. Many people believed that at the time. And of course, turned out not to be the case, turned out actually the biggest use case for that was people putting on a VR headset, but to watch Netflix in the VR headset. And they would just take the VR headset, put a giant TV in VR in front of them, so they feel like they have a gigantic TV, and watch Netflix on the TV in VR, which is pretty funny, turned out to be, to be that big use case. And I could go on forever, my point here being, I am always very careful with those kind of questions, because as I've learned, some of the best things we've discovered at, at my current company building a VR headset is one of the best things that can happen to us is hiring those odd 
weird people that see something else that other people don't see and not shutting down their ideas. If it's inevitable and these changes occur from giant mainframe to personal computer to phone to virtual reality, what is your personal take at Unai? What is, what is it that you're saying is going to happen? How is it going to happen? Maybe let's start with this. Where is the current zeitgeist in the industry? And if you look at what Meta is saying, and frankly, I believe that the reason VR is not take off, most of it is due to the narrative that Meta is pushing. What we're being told is that VR is this thing that is going to enable us to move our entire lives to the virtual world. And so the metaphor that they're going for, right, is move your life to the metaverse. The keywords here are things like limitless, everything in the digital world. And that's kind of like the, the, the vibe that they are trying to build, right? And I think that's a very destructive way of presenting VR. So my, my deep, deep belief is that quite a few things have changed in the past few years. One of them is that people realized that actually Instagram is cool, but not so great. People are going to be spending a lot of time every week on Instagram. And if you ask them at the end of the week, hey, like, would you like to spend some more time on Instagram? Of course, people are going to be like, no, like, of, of course not. And so it's almost as if people are being hijacked into doing something that they don't feel like is bringing them much value into their daily life. And because of that, people sort of have internalized the fact that those computing devices are being optimized by the data scientists to make us do things we don't necessarily want to do. And I know I'm stating the obvious here, but if you don't understand why VR is not take off yet, it's exactly because of that. It's because people know that already just with their phone and Instagram, they already feel like they are wasting time and they don't have anything to show for all the time they spend on Instagram. And so when you tell them about VR, even if they don't say it out loud, what is going on in the back of their head is, it's going to be even worse than Instagram. I'm going to waste so much time in VR. It's, going to, it, it's not going to be net positive for me in my daily life. And so that's the big challenge of VR. And I believe that this challenge is not really only due to perception. I believe it's also uh, caused by the kind of experience being built in VR, where having a Zoom meeting in VR and having like a five hours, like your whole work day in VR of like Zoom meetings and, and just kind of doing almost the same thing you do in real life, but in VR, I don't think it's very compelling for people. And again, if you look at the marketing material from Meta, that's what we're being sold and that's what's being built. Instead, I think a much more exciting view on what VR can be is a device to bring a lot more balance to people's personal life and their relationship with the digital world. So I'll tell you what is my personal way of using VR and what I think is going to take off. Mostly during the day, my notifications are mostly turned off. If I'm outside, if I'm reading a book, if I'm doing whatever, I'm doing that thing and I'm like mostly sort of almost off grid, right? And if I'm at work, people can come to me at the office and, and, and talk to me, but mostly my digital devices are going to be turned off. And, you know, I don't have Instagram or, or like all those apps installed on my phone. Uh, you know, your notifications are basically a to-do list open to the world. 
So where like anyone can put an item on your to-do list just by messaging you. Uh, so instead, I have like time slots every day to sort of go in there and sort of go through all my emails and go through all my messages, go through all my notifications. But I make it very deliberate instead of having that device sort of dictate my, my daily life. And then the role that VR plays into this is that when I need to have very intense, meaningful experiences, sometimes needing, basically I need to go into a different place, that's when I put on my VR headset. And those tend to be short, but very intense, super meaningful experiences. So very often when I'm trying to think through very hard problems, what I'll sometimes do is I'll just grab my VR headset, put it on, and go into this room that I customize that is almost like my meditation room. And it allows me to just go to this completely new place, spend maybe 40, 45 minutes in it, meditate on whatever problems I have, be completely cut off from the rest and sort of hyper-focused on that one thing I want to solve. And then just take it off. And when I take off the headset, I feel great about the time I spent in VR. I don't feel like I wasted my time in VR like you would on Instagram or whatever. I feel like, wow, that was super useful. I put that device on, I went to a completely different world, different place. I got something for it. I have something for the time to show for the time I spent in VR. And now I can bring that thing back, back into my daily life. I think that what you'll find in practice, it's not that people are going to spend all day long in VR, sort of just hooked to the, to the display at all time. I think what VR is going to enable them is when they will go digital, they'll have the most intense, immersive, complete experience you could possibly imagine. And then they will log out off of it and then sort of not, not use their phone or whatever. It's just, I think it will make the, the difference between being connected and being disconnected a lot more stark. It's interesting because you're the first guest, I'd say, that we've ever had that is at a stage in their company where anything could happen. And so what's nice and exciting is sort of this inflection point, this this moment in time capturing your story. Because, you know, there's usually in these stories where, where we interview entrepreneurs, it's like, and then this happened and this is what I'm doing now. Whereas you're just about to get going. How old are you, Maxim? 21. Right. So at 21, you seem very confident. You've talked about being very good at making quick decisions. I'd like to know, do you think you're a good boss yet? Are you a good entrepreneur yet? What have you got left to learn? Oh, so much left to learn. You know, I, I, I tend to think of my decisiveness as, as a strength, but that's actually uh, kind of untrue and very one-dimensional. Of course, the upside is pretty obvious. I can very easily tell the team when I like that demo, I don't like it, here's why I like it, here's why I don't like it. And, you know, for engineers and designers, this, this feels nice because someone really, really cares about their work and someone is able to articulate uh, an opinion on it. Now, th th there's a big drawback to this, which is um, I had to learn to sort of take a little bit of a step back and, and, and take my decision a little slower and surround myself with more senior people that would bring in more nuance. I do not want to hire people to tell them what to do. I want to hire people that can tell me what we should be doing. And that's really, that should be my job. And I should go out there to try and find those incredible people that, you know, it's easy to tell people what to do. It's a lot harder to find those people they, that can, you know, stop the conversation, pretend like they agree, go out there and do the right thing, even if it goes against what I told them, and find those people that can tell me what we should be doing. So I would say that's probably my, my biggest learning. 
I'd love your advice for other entrepreneurs that are looking to take on new categories, that are looking to build the future, that are looking to take on titans and change the world in their own way. What is the advice you offer to people like that? The advice I would give them is to try very hard to identify the things that are inevitable. All the signs are there. And to question really, really hard what is something that money cannot buy, that really has to stem from the culture of the company. And it might sound obvious, but it's usually very challenging, but those things do exist. At the end of the day, Google has infinite amount of money, and yet they've not been able to build an iPhone, right? They've tried to compete with Apple, they have infinite amount of money. So why is it that Google is not able to build an iPhone? Well, Google is not able to build an iPhone because they've made some cultural choices around how the company is structured, the culture that they've built, how they prioritize things, their approach to design and hardware and scheduling that structurally prevents them from delivering the kind of thing that Apple is building. And then it goes the other way, right? Apple has infinite amount of money. They're not able to build a search engine. Despite, uh, you know, recently one of the leading person working on game engines at Apple left the company to go back to Google, uh, qu quite a big deal in the lower world of the valley. Um, and, but despite that, Apple is not able to build a game engine. And so this is my way of saying, this is the proof that even with infinite amount of money, there are some things that you cannot do because those things require a very specific, unique set of belief and culture. And if you're able to identify those things and, and work very hard on them, then you might have a chance. Maxim Perumal, a name I think you'll hear a lot more of. I love technology, but our relationship with it is entering its most dangerous phase. And I would quite like to not spend all my time in the metaverse. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards with the help of Lower Street and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon.